Will you pray with me? Father, this morning I ask that you would help me to speak with faithfulness, with clarity, with humility, with grace. This is not my These are not my people. This is not my time. Help me to be a faithful herald of your message to you. For the sake of the gospel. Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. We are going to be looking at the text that was read a couple of minutes ago. And put your finger or a piece of paper there and flip back to the book of Second Peter, all the way back toward the back of your Bibles to the book of Second Peter. So hold your place in Genesis 19 and look with me at Second Peter. If you have an uh, electronic device, just go ahead and find Second Peter chapter 2. We'll get there in just a minute. In 2001, Robert Gundry wrote a wonderful little book with an amazing title. The title says, Jesus, the Word According to John the Sectarian, a Paleo-Fundamentalist Manifesto for Contemporary Evangelicalism, especially its elites in North America. Now, I can guarantee you that name was not done by an editor, okay? <laughs> Only an author would give a book a title like that, and normally titles like that do not sell books, but this book has been very, very popular among evangelical leaders, pastors, and others, and I would commend it to you if you're interested in a rather academic reading of a very contemporary issue in life today. Dr. Gundry is a professor in residence. He is a biblical scholar, and his basic premise in this book is that the traditional biblical godliness that was taught in the Scriptures and in the 18th century uh, and 19th century and into the early parts of the 20th century emphasized a, an engagement with the world and yet a separation from the world as godly people was then captured by a period of legalism and uh, hypocrisy and Phariseeism. And what he says is needed is a return to what he calls the paleo-fundamentalist mindset of the Apostle John. Now, that's confusing. Let me read to you a short quote from an article that Dr. Gundry, um, where he was interviewed. And here's what he says, and this is why I think it's so apropos to today. He says, the seeker sensitivity of evangelicals, their practice of suiting the gospel to the felt needs of people, contributes to their numerical success, but can easily sow the seeds of worldliness broadly conceived. How so? Well, in a society such as ours, where people do not feel particularly guilty before God, though in fact they are, seeker sensitivity, if consistently carried through, will soft-pedal the preaching of salvation from sin, for such preaching would not meet a felt need of the people. As a result, the gospel message of saving, sanctifying grace reduces to a gospel massage of physical, psychological, and social well-being that allows worldliness to flourish. And by worldliness, he does not mean just the, the, the disregard of taboos against smoking and drinking and dancing and movie going and gambling, all those kind of things, but more expansively matters like materialism, pleasure-seeking, indiscriminate enjoyment of salacious and violent entertainment, 
immodesty of dress, voyeurism, sexual laxity, and divorce. And I ask you, does that not describe the evangelical church in America today? Would anyone deny that this is not who we are? That Would we deny that materialism grips the church? Would we deny that pleasure-seeking is common among us? Would we deny that evangelicals watch sensuality and violence like everyone else? Would we deny that modesty has been minimized and that voyeurism and pornography and sexual laxity and divorce are on the rise within the very church of Jesus Christ itself? What we need today is not a massage to make us feel better about ourselves. What we need is a message about a believer who finished unwell. And you may say to me, well, Pastor Steve, that is wonderful. I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're talking about, but what does that have to do with our text today? It has everything to do with our text today. You know the story of Lot. If you've read Genesis at all, you know the whole thing, and we'll review it in just a minute. But everything about the story of Lot in the book of Genesis would lead us to believe that this was a godless man who just happened to be the nephew of Abraham. And this man, all he wanted was the sexuality and the sinfulness of Sodom to the point of committing the most heinous, reprehensible acts that we can imagine. Until we come to 2 Peter chapter 2. Because once we get to Genesis chapter 19, we never see Lot again except as a reference to him as an ancestor of his two offspring throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But when we get to the book of 2 Peter, we find out something very interesting about Lot. And so if you're open to 2 Peter, look at 2 Peter chapter 2, and let's begin at verse 6. What Peter is doing is he is explaining to the Christians who are undergoing persecution in the midst of an evil world how God is able to rescue them and protect them in the midst of all that they are going through in their world. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter, If he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to ruin, making them an example of those, to those who were going to be ungodly, and if he rescued righteous And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral, for as he had lived among them, that righteous man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Are you kidding me, I said to the Lord as I was studying this passage. You see, all of a sudden... Genesis 19 is not a story of his two depraved daughters. Genesis 19 is a story of a believer who lost his way and drifted. It's a story about me and about you and about us, and about the church in America today. And that is why I believe with all my heart that this is most likely the most important message that God has given me for this entire series of Genesis. And I beg you over the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, to give me your attention as best you can so that God can speak to all of our hearts. Because you see, the descent starts with Lot back there in Genesis chapter 19. Actually, it goes all the way back to chapter 12. You remember Lot left 
with his uncle Abraham and his aunt Sarah, and they leave Ur of the Chaldees. He walked that 800 miles to Canaan, gets settled there, but slowly he begins to release the hold of God on his life. He is lulled away. He is lured away. He looks across that vast, beautiful plain of Jordan. And in chapter 13, it tells us that he pitched his tents as far as Sodom, living outside the city. And then by chapter 14, he is living in Sodom. And then when we get to chapter 19, verse 1, it says he was sitting at Sodom's gate. He was one of the major leaders in that city. And yet Peter tells us that all the time he was grieving over what was going on in the city, but you would never know it by the way that he acted. And so when the time came, these two visitors come to visit him, come to the city, he takes them into his home, and then the men of the city come and bang on his door wanting those men to be drug out to them so that they could have their way with him. And Lot, this righteous, godly man, is willing to sacrifice his own daughters. Give them to these men to do with as they pleased in order that he might remain and retain his reputation as a leader in the city. Those two men who, unbeknownst to Lot, were angels sent from God, grab him and say, we've got to get out of here now. You have to leave the city. The city is going to be destroyed. And yet he drug his feet, and finally they had to literally grab him by the hands and drag him out of the city as the sun was rising, sending him to Zoar. Lot heading to the city that really was Sodom in miniature with the promise that they would not destroy that city if he would go there and stay. And so Lot settles into Zoar, but next thing you know, he's unsettled there. He's uncomfortable there. He's afraid that maybe something might go amiss there. Maybe the people will understand that he came from Sodom and blame him for what happened and attack him, or maybe God's promise won't hold true. And so he decides to run to the hill country and live in a cave. Isn't it interesting he never thought about going home to Abraham? He never thought about going back to his uncle. Maybe it was because of guilt. Maybe it was because of his own sin. Maybe he didn't think he would be welcomed. I don't know. But he ended up living in a cave, a place where you put corpses when they die. And he and his daughters live in that cave. What an image it is of his spiritual condition. Living in the dark, musty dankness of a cave. But his descent into Sodom living was not just his. He carried on into his daughter's life as well. Look at what it says in verse 31 of chapter 19. In verse 30, we're told that Lot departed from Zoar, lived in the mountains along with his two daughters. He lived in a cave. And in verse 31, the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. These girls had grown up watching the life of Sodom. And the spirit of Sodom had been planted in their hearts. But even there, they knew that what they were doing was wrong. 
they knew this was not the way that things should be done. Not only in the law of God's people, but also in the Code of Hammurabi and in the Hittite Code, this kind of activity was forbidden. And probably one of the reasons why they said we need to get our father drunk was so that he would not know or else he would have refused. And yet they had learned in Sodom the mix of of, of wine and sensuality and deception and how things can be done when people are not in their right senses. They had learned about deception because they had watched the city, a city that was built on deception. But more than that, they had watched the deception of their father who would sit around the dinner table complaining about what was going on out in the streets of Sodom and yet never uttering a word and the seeds of Sodom were not only in Lot's heart, they had grown and multiplied in the hearts of these girls. And what is so amazing is that in the end, Lot carries out the very thing that he had offered for these men to do with his daughters. Isn't it interesting the two times we have judgment from God in the book of Genesis, at the flood with Noah, and the destruction of Sodom, that the two righteous characters, Noah and Lot, both end up falling into the very same sin that God had just punished the people for. Don't you think those girls remembered what their dad had said standing at the door that night? Don't you think they remembered the terror that they felt at the prospect of being thrown out the front door of their own home to those men? The seed of Sodom was growing in these girls' hearts. Now, let me be quick to add, this was not some kind of perverse sensuality. These girls were thinking economically. They knew their only hope was to have children. The only hope for them was to be able to continue a life with offspring so that they then could have a family to take care of them in their old age. But still, it was wrong. And by the way, let me say one more thing before we move on with this. Lest you want to exonerate Lot in this situation, he was culpable too. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. He was drunk. Let me tell you something. When it says here, look at what it says in verses 33 and 34. It says, when he, he did not know when she lay down or when she got up. This doesn't mean that he was unconscious because without being too graphic, a man who is so drunk that he's unconscious can't do what Lot did. No, Lot was just drunk enough that he didn't know with whom he was doing what he was doing. But he was still guilty, just as guilty as any father would be today of getting drunk and taking advantage of his children in whatever way. Yes, Lot was culpable as well. And the rebirth of Sodom occurred in that cave on that night. And now the descent of Lot and the descent of his daughters comes together in a mutual descent. Let's read verses 33 through 35. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. And the next day the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. That night they again got their father to drink wine, and the younger went and slept with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their 
the seeds of Sodom. Have you ever gone out in the morning like I do to take the dogs out just as the sun is coming up and notice that overnight 1,236 dandelions have cropped up in your backyard and you go, where did these things come from? Well, the same thing is true with sin in Lot's life and his daughter's life. Lot was living every day thinking that he was teaching his girls right from wrong by telling them this is wrong, what these people are doing is wrong. And yet at the same time, he never said a word. He never stood up for what he knew was right. He never challenged because he had to maintain his reputation. He had to maintain his power. He had to maintain his position. He had to maintain all the things that he had come to love in Sodom. And the girls saw that. And they knew that. And so the dandelions that were growing in his heart, the seeds of those had been planted in the hearts of those girls. And they too had a heart that was committed to Sodom. And their children were born. Look what it says in verse 37. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. That word Moab literally means from my father. He's the father of the Moabites of today. The younger also gave birth to a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, son of my paternal kinsman. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Listen, I don't want you to misunderstand. This is not why there was enmity between the Moabites and the Ammonites and the people of Israel. You'll remember later in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a tremendous conflict. But at the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses is told, now when you pass through and you come to the land of the Moabites and the land of the Ammonites, do not mess with them, do not bother them, because I have given them the land because of their ancestor Lot. They didn't have a bad relationship with the Moabites and Ammonites at all in the beginning. This shame of how their ancestors came to be was not the reason there was animosity between them. It was because of the way they were treated. The Israelites were treated by the Moabites and the Ammonites in chapter 23 of Deuteronomy as they were attacked by their own kinsmen as they tried to pass through quietly into the promised land. But I want to remind you of one more thing. King David was the descendant of a young woman named Ruth. And Ruth was... A Moabite. And by the way, she was also one of the ancestors of our Savior. So please don't ever forget that no matter how twisted and evil a person can become, they still can find grace through Jesus Christ. So what does all this say to us? Well, you see, Lot's folly... Lot's immoral folly was that he thought that he could live in a society that was overcome with sin and debauchery and in his heart be opposed to it while staying silent and that the seeds of that culture would not creep into not only his heart and his life but also that of his children. And now you understand why Gundry is so important. The quote that I started this with. 
Because in Dr. Gundry's book, he talks about the fact that we too live in Sodom. We live in a society and a culture where we as Christians constantly sit in rooms like this one, this sanctuary and the beacon, and we talk about how evil things are, and we sit in our Sunday school classrooms and our Bible study groups, and we talk about how horrible things are, and then we go out into the world, and we live day by day by day, and we never say a word because we could lose our job, or we could lose our reputation, or we could lose our influence. And without us realizing it, the culture of Sodom, the standards of Sodom are creeping into our lives. And worse, exponentially worse, creeping into the hearts and lives of those whom we love the most. Our children. And our grandchildren. Beloved, I'm heartsick over where our society is going. Politically, culturally, socially, and spiritually. But listen, the only ones they can do anything about that. It's us. Do you understand? In one sense, we are alone, but we are never alone. No one in the White House or the State House or the Courthouse is going to stand for what is right. But we, as the people of God, must do more than talk behind these sacred closed doors about the evil of the world around us, we must stand. And so in closing, I want to challenge us. Over this past week on retreat, I've wrestled with this text. And not in my time of preparing the sermon, in my quiet time, about my relationship to the Lord and my relationship to Christ and my relationship to my community and my relationship to my neighbors. And in my notes, I jotted down four areas from that list that Gundry gave us, and I want to challenge us today and ask the question of whether the seeds of Sodom are growing in our hearts. The culture of the world around us have crept in. Let's start with materialism. Whether we are wealthy or not, we must say no to materialism. I must say no. We as a church, we as individuals, we as Christians must say no. We know it's bad, but we are not saying no when we deny nothing to ourselves. We are not saying no when we give our children whatever they want if they just pester us long enough. We are not saying no if our giving to the Lord and to His kingdom, whether it's through our tithes, whether it's through ensuring the vision, whether it's through giving to missions, does not affect our lifestyle in a meaningful and substantive way. We simply must not be worldly materialists who are only offended by those who li whose lifestyles are even more opulent than ours. We must say no. We must not participate in Lot's folly. 
pleasure-seeking. Nothing is more despotic or demonic than pleasure-seeking. And few things control our families more than pleasure. Oh, certainly we must know how to abound. And, and as Christians, in a sense, our pleasures are more acute. But to determine our actions by a desire to pursue the greatest pleasure is to surrender to hell itself and to bring the ways of hell on our offspring. Don't you remember? Lot could never say no, not even in that dark cave. But we must Entertainment. Despite all the pundits' excuses, we become what we focus on in the same way that we are what we eat. I want to call men because we men are the ones that are primarily responsible for what comes into our homes, or at least should be. And at the same time, in most cases, men, we are the biggest offenders. I want to call on us to take control of what comes in to our houses. We must become biblically discriminating about what happens in our homes. Some of us need to put the TV in the closet for a season because television violence is the rule in most homes. Sensuality is the rule on every network on television. Today is the day to say no and to take control over our minds and our souls for the sake of of our children, we must say no to Sodom. And finally, modesty or immodesty. Modesty must be essential in every Christian life, not because we think we are good, but because we know how bad we really are. And so we must emphasize modesty in our lives. We must celebrate the differences between men and women, not with lewdness, but with respect that honors the God who made us. I have to tell you that this it's been one of the hardest messages that God has ever given me to share with His people. And if I'm perfectly honest with you, which I try to always be, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Oh, fine. So you're saying we should all become Amish and, and wear long dresses and put bonnets on our heads and drive around in horse buggies. No. Of course not. Because that's not what Jesus called for either. You see, Jesus understood what it meant to live in the midst of Sodom and yet be separate, openly, publicly, visibly separate. The world will never understand the power of the gospel if we live out our lives day after day after day, intoxicated, inebriated, addicted to the life and the culture of Sodom around us. So in one sense, yes, we must become sectarians. But I need to tell you something else. If you heard that voice in your head, 
saying, well, I guess Pastor Steve has just gone off the deep end now. Let me tell you something. That's the king of Sodom whispering in your ear. Oh, <laughs> he wants anything he can. He doesn't care that you're not a citizen of his kingdom. You're living in his kingdom. And all he cares about is your money and your mouth. Keep your money flowing and keep your mouth shut. And so, beloved, please understand, I am not pointing any fingers at you. I am burdened in my own heart. I'm burdened in my own life. I'm burdened in my own home. I have got to make some serious things. Sharon and I are going to a marriage retreat tomorrow morning. And we're going to spend a week, and part of what we're going to talk about is how do we get the dandelions of Sodom out of our hearts? Because let me tell you, just because they're there does not mean they can be eradicated. It begins by acknowledging the fact that we have slowly moved ourselves closer and closer and closer into the world and that we need to do everything in our power to confess that to God and to ask Him to come and work in our hearts a cleansing and a renewing and then get out the hose and the shovels and the weed killers and begin to eradicate one patch at a time those areas of Sodom knowing that God is our helper and he will walk with us. I want us to be in the world more than we have ever been in it before. But I also want us to be in the world as salt and light and leaven. I want people to be able to see in our lives that we have rejected the culture of Sodom. We have rejected the culture of American materialism and sensuality and immodesty that we honor the covenants that we have with the Lord and with one another. If we're going to leave a legacy in this town, if we're going to leave a legacy in Monroe County, in this part of Illinois, in our nation and around the world, it begins with us saying, we will say no. Now, here's what we're going to do. Now, I know I'm talking to those of you over at the Beacon. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to do the very same thing with the people that are going to be here in this room. We're not going to have a closing song because I don't want anything to distract what's going on in our hearts right now. I want you to look into your own heart first and ask yourself, where have I succumbed to the spirit of Sodom in my heart? And I want you to be ready to confess that. I want you to think about your family. I want you to think about your children. But listen, beloved, we cannot start with our spouses or our kids or our neighbors until we take care of ourselves. I want to ask you to bow your heads in just a moment and close your eyes, and I'm going to lead a closing word of prayer. And then we'll be done. You can sit there at the beacon as long as you want. There'll not be any music playing. You can sit and think and pray. You can find a room back on the hallway and pray and think as long as you need to. But I don't want anything to distract the work that the Holy Spirit is doing right now. And so we're going to pray, and then the video is going to be over. And then it's going to be up to you.
God bless you. May God bless us as his people. Let's pray together. Father, these are critically important moments in our lives. I don't think there's a soul in this room that is deceived into thinking this is just one more normal Sunday. This little obscure, offensive story about Lot and his two daughters has suddenly come home to every one of us because we recognize it, while maybe not as excessive as that, but in our own way, we too have bought in to the culture of Sodom. Oh, we complain about television, we complain about Washington and Springfield and we complain about all the horrible things our kids see and hear at school, but we sit quietly by and do nothing. When you have told us through your son that when the church unites for your kingdom, the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against us. And so I pray in the moments that are about to occur, that in the silence of those moments, you will work in our hearts. That in the silence of those moments, we will think about our children and our grandchildren and the great-grandchildren that are not yet born, whose names are known only to you. And ask ourselves, what can we do today to keep the weeds of Sodom from growing in their hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving me the courage to declare it. I can do nothing about the response. I have absolutely no control over it. That is all you're doing, and I'm trusting you now to work in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name.